the, the first reading was supposed to be from Genesis 3 and uh, the fall of, of Adam and Eve after getting the fruit. I'm not sure where that came from, but uh, how many, did you have more pages to go on that? Did you? Okay, okay, well. I'm sorry. So, so, um, all right, we're going to be in uh, Acts chapter 5 this morning. We're going to pick up where we left off, which is in the second uh, part of, of uh, chapter 5, verse 21. So it's 21b. Let me pray, and then we'll, we'll, we'll dive in. Father, thank you that you have brought us uh, to this place. Uh, thank you for this church. We ask that you would give us ready uh, minds and hearts to hear your word, and I pray that you would give us the grace uh, to apply it to our lives. I pray that you would be with me as I preach so that I will do so in a way that will uh, glorify your son and uh, help people understand what you have given us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's, it's probably uh, sometime around mid-morning in, in Jerusalem. The high priest and the chief priests and the leading Sadducees and the leading Pharisees and the elders of the people uh, have taken their baths, they've, they've finished their breakfasts, they put on their special hats and their robes if they have them, because there's going to be a meeting. The Sanhedrin, 70 of the most powerful, learned, respected men in Israel is preparing to convene to decide the fate of 12 prisoners who were arrested the day before. Now, for the high priest in particular, Caiaphas, with that arrest, with the arrest of those those 12 men, life, which had begun to seem rather dim and dark, suddenly took a turn for the better. Even if it is past mid-morning, if it's the afternoon, well, it must be morning in his heart. It's, it's springtime for Caiaphas, because for a long time, oh, my thing is coming off, I should put this back on here. Uh, for a long time, these men have been troublesome, and at long last, he probably thinks we've got them. The 12 men who have caused so much trouble and frustration and heartburn, giving their speeches all over Jerusalem, even in the temple itself, about this dead Nazarene, telling everyone that he's been raised from the dead. It's nonsense, of course. Caiaphas would tell himself, there's no such thing as as resurrection from the dead. All the smartest people are sure about that. Uh, And because we, uh, bearing God's authority, condemned the man to death for his blasphemy and for his claiming to be God's son. And because he died hanging on a tree, crucified, which means he was cursed by God, which proves that we were right about this man all along. This whole thing is absurd. And if it weren't for all the tricks, the miracles, the prisoners Used, you have been using to dupe the people, blind people seeing, lame people walking, deaf people hearing. If it weren't for those tricks, nobody would believe it. We've not quite figured out how to explain all those things yet. We've got our best minds working on it. And it really doesn't matter anymore 
because now we have them locked up. We've put them in jail. There'll be no more preaching, uh, no more miracles, and today we get to decide how to put an end to it all. Their fate is in our hands. Now, maybe those weren't Caiaphas' exact thoughts, but it's a good guess that he is in an exultant mood as he makes his way with his retinue through the streets of Jerusalem to the chamber where the Sanhedrin meets, probably somewhere near or in the temple. And he takes his place, Caiaphas would, at the center of a semicircle of 70 seats. His seat would be right there in the center, the most exalted of them, flanked by his colleagues and friends and enemies and political rivals and political allies. He would then call the meeting to order. And that's where we pick up in verse 21 of chapter 5. And we read there, Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, he called together the council all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. Now they would be sending Levites, uh, who are descendants of Jacob's son Levi, uh, who were charged long before this through Moses by God to care for the tabernacle. By this time, some of, of these descendants of Levi have been organized into an armed temple police force to keep the order and to keep the peace in the temple, they bear weapons, swords, clubs, spears, and they'd be trained to use them. So there's no reason why anyone in the Sanhedrin chamber, uh, for anyone in there to doubt that the prisoners would soon be produced, brought forward, dragged in if necessary, to face justice. The verdict, by the way, is, is, a, is a foregone conclusion. The twelve have been commanded by the Sanhedrin not to preach in the name of the dead man from Nazareth. And they have been preaching in that name ever since. So they're in direct violation of the Sanhedrin order. The only thing to decide is what to do with them. The sentence. Now maybe the high priest, while he waits for the prisoners to be brought... Uh, thinks through his strategy on that score because there may be a bit of an argument. Some of the Pharisees are going wobbly by this time. We're going to see them go very wobbly later on in Acts. Some of the Pharisees are going wobbly because the prisoners are saying there has been a resurrection. And the Pharisees believe that there will be a resurrection. So they're, they're, they're kind of sympathetic to the claims that are being made, but they're not thinking straight. Caiaphas would, would, would be probably thinking, if this thing spreads any further, the Pharisees will be in just as bad shape as, as, as we will, because the Pharisees hated the Nazarene. They charged him with blasphemy before anyone else. All but two of them voted for his death. So, so surely it, by the end of this, they'll come around and we'll get the verdict that we want. Well, uh, whatever... Whatever Caiaphas might have been thinking, the Levites return and ruin everything. You can see it there in verses 22 and 23. When the officers came, they did not find them, see, the 12, in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked 
and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, the doors, we found no one inside. Now, if you were here last Sunday or you've read this part of Acts before, you, you know what happened. But imagine, imagine being on the Sanhedrin and hearing that news for the first time. Now, it would be, it would be one thing if the officers came back and said, hey, we've, we found those guards knocked out and, and bloodied and the, the doors, the cell door, doors were open and the, the cells were empty. That would at least make some sense. They might have even welcomed news like that because, uh, because then they don't have to mess around with legal niceties. The, 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 the apostles and, and those who sprung them from jail would then be renegades and uh, they, they, fought, they, they would have spilled Jewish blood and then they could be put down by force. I think they would have, they would have appreciated news like that. I think in, in many cases the world would very much like for Christians, for the church, to take up arms. That's one reason, by the way, the church is not and cannot be about revolution or, or force of arms. Uh, Christians serving in the military or the police or in a situation of self-defense, or if you have to defend your family or, or someone who's weak, uh, then, then force in those cases uh, when justice and, and, and duty make it, make it necessary, well, well, the Christian can, can use force. We live in a fallen world, and sometimes, sometimes that, that's necessary. But the church, as the church, never takes up arms to force her way onto the world. Because the church in the world is an outpost of the great kingdom that Jesus tells us is not of the world. One day Jesus is going to bring heaven and earth together and he's going to establish his his kingdom here. But until then, our duty is to fight and to conquer and to topple earthly powers by the word of God, the gospel. Entrusting our lives and our, and our possessions to Jesus. If he considers us worthy to, to suffer or to be persecuted like the prophets and the apostles, then we rejoice and bear it because he says our reward will be great in heaven. In this particular case, Jesus himself has gone to battle against his enemies. Not by shedding their blood or breaking their bones, but by confounding their designs. By, by throwing their plans into confusion. What, 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 do you, what do you do with this if you're Caiaphas or a member of the Sanhedrin? The guards are still at their posts. Apparently, it seems, they, they still thought they had prisoners inside. There, there's no hint here. I think we would have one if it were the case. But there's no hint here that they fell asleep during the night, or were derelict in any way in their duty? They've, they've apparently been at their posts the whole time. The doors are locked, though, and the, there's no sign of them being pried open or forced, but the prisoners just aren't there. Now, if you have not read verse 19 of chapter 5, none of this makes sense. 
How did the prisoners escape? Or, or, or who set them free? How, how did the guards not, not see it? Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests, this is verse 24, heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. Uh, the captain of the temple, we, we met him back in chapter 3, when he arrested Peter and John. He's the priest in charge of the temple police. Uh, that means that he's the captain of the ship. He bears responsibility for everything that happens with prisoners in the jail or with the, guard, the, the guards that are guarding them or with the, the police force in the temple. He bears all the responsibility for everything that happens in that context. And, and so if, if there's, there's been an error, if there's been a mistake, it's his, his responsibility. So he's in the hot seat here. He's perplexed. And the high priest and the chief priest too, they're, they're, they're also perplexed. Those men were locked up. Now they're gone. Now the perplexity here, I, I don't think it's an entirely new sensation for the high priest, for the Sadducees, or for the Pharisees. For many years, the priests and Sadducees and Pharisees and teachers and elders have held sway over Israel. The Pharisees, Jesus tells us this, the Pharisees set heavy loads on the backs of, of the people. They said to them, you, you are responsible for establishing your own righteousness before God. Follow these regulations. Keep these practices. Walk this far and that far only on the Sabbath day. Wash your pots and your pans and your cups and your mats in just this particular way. If you're hungry on the Sabbath, don't you dare pick a, a head of grain and eat it or you'll be a Sabbath breaker. And when you fail, fail to carry the load of the regulations of the Pharisees, and when you begin to feel the, the weight of, of your sin and disobedience, well, that's when the priests and the Sadducees come in. Because in the Old Testament, God says, uh, bring your sacrificial lamb to the temple and to the priests. But the priests in, in, in this day, in Acts chapter 5, would tell you, the only acceptable sacrifice, the only acceptable animal for a sacrifice is, is an animal that you purchase right here from us in this market in the temple. Oh, wow, too bad it's so expensive. And too bad you can't buy it with the coins you have in your pocket. You've got to use the temple coin. You've got to exchange those coins for our coins. Oh, man, the exchange rate is so high. Sorry about that. Looks like you're losing a lot of money in the deal, but if you want your sins forgiven, you better be ready to pay up. If you've grown up in a church or you've sat under some teaching and you have been taught that your relationship with God, His love for you, your peace with Him, depends on your obedience, your godliness, your purity, 
on your giving him the right sacrifices at the right time and in the right way, then you're familiar with the prison that had become Israel. The taskmasters tell you to do this and to do that so you can live, but they never give you any straw to make the bricks. you got to come up with that for yourself, and you can't. If that's the only news you've ever heard, you're a slave. You are, you're in prison. But here, here's the good news for prisoners everywhere. The gospel cannot be bound. No prison can contain Jesus. No taskmaster can thwart him. He sets the prisoners free and opens the eyes of the blind. The Pharisees were perplexed when people stopped listening to them and threw down their spades and their bundles. When the weary and the burdened and the heavy laden came to Jesus and he lifted the burden of the law from their shoulders and fulfilled it on their behalf and gave them rest for their labors. The priests, I'll bet, were perplexed when people stopped buying their goats and their lambs and exchanging their coins because God had given them a spotless lamb and a perfect once-for-all sacrifice free of charge. God set their prisoners free right under their noses while they stood there at their posts. Now, I don't think this perplexity is, a, is an unfamiliar feeling for these people. They've been perplexed ever since Jesus started freeing their captives about three years beforehand. And he's still at it. Someone came in and told them in verse 25, Look, the men whom you've put into prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Now, before this news came, the high priest and the rest were, were maybe thinking they'd have to make, make a search and send the police door to door to find, these, to find these guys. But it turns out that while they were earlier in the morning eating their eggs and, the, and putting on their robes and their special hats and taking their high seats in the, in the, in the Sanhedrin and planning out their talking points for the debate, uh, even while they were wondering whether they were going to have to send the police out to go find them, the, the fugitives had been the whole time right there in the temple courts, maybe a short walk from where they're meeting. And they've been teaching the people about Jesus of Nazareth since early morning. Now, if you're the high priest, that's bad news. It's terrible news. Because the arrest of the 12 was not done in secret. The, the, they put the apostles in public prison, publicly. Everyone knew that they had been arrested. And, and, and the reason that, that the, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin wanted to make it public is because they were making a point. Uh, we've got the power here, they were saying. And they wanted the people to see that. So the appearance of the apostles, bright and early in the morning, free and preaching about Jesus of Nazareth, telling everyone, no doubt, that the Lord set them free 
the night before, people hearing and seeing that would conclude, well, the high priest and, and the members of the Sanhedrin, well, they've obviously set themselves against God and his servants. By, by, by publicly arresting the apostles, the high priest set up the circumstances for Christ to publicly vindicate the apostles. And this, Satan always overreaches. Always. I was, uh, some of you know, I was interviewed by some Southern Baptists this, this last week for one of their podcasts, and uh, they don't know a lot about Anglican stuff. I don't know a lot about Southern Baptist stuff, so there was a lot to explain about that. But they, they had heard the story about the Episcopal Church taking our, our old building and selling it to Muslims for half the price that, that we offered, and they asked me to tell that story again. And as I was telling it, they were, I could see we had a video conference going, they were really shocked by the whole thing. Now, we are a very small church, comparatively. Uh, Binghamton isn't, isn't a, a, a world metropolis. People aren't streaming to Binghamton from all, all corners of the world. And So how did the Episcopal Church just let us go? No one would ever have heard about us. Or about what the Episcopal Church did. But they had to try and crush us. Now people all around the world know about what they've done. And, and God has orchestrated uh, and he's used the whole thing to give courage to congregations facing what we faced. And in fact, a few years ago, a couple of years ago, we were down in South Carolina. With the, there was a whole bunch of lawsuits. Same thing against churches there. And they had printed up bumper stickers that said, Remember Binghamton. <laughs> I'm trying to forget Binghamton half the time. They're, they're putting her, Remember Binghamton. Now, I mean, I'm saying all this, there's, there's no reason for us to get, to get puffed up as if we did anything on our own. That was, this was God's doing. God sets the prisoners free. God strengthens weak knees. He lifts weary hands. The apostles would not have preached like they're preaching right there in the temple courts five months earlier. But now, by God's grace... They are preaching Christ and him crucified in the courts that are overseen by his crucifiers. Well, it turns out the Sanhedrin still doesn't know when to quit. 26, verse 26 and 27. Then the captain of the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priests questioned them. Now, if you've read the Gospels, just think about the popular mood here. The popular mood has shifted dramatically. Just three months before this, the same people, the same crowds were, were screaming for Jesus to be crucified. Now they are persuaded that Jesus' apostles are men who speak and act by the power and authority of God. And that's why... That's why the captain and his men can't just rush in and, and take them by force like they, they might have done earlier. They've got to be polite. Would you come along with us, sirs, please? And, you know, Peter could have said, that he has the power of the people behind him. Peter could have said, now, no, Mr. Captain, I'm not going to let you arrest us today and gone about his business. 
But he doesn't. He doesn't do that. The apostles, all together, they submit and go with, go with the officers. And you might wonder why, because you might remember that the angel who freed them said, hey, I want you to go into the courts and preach to the people. So why did they go with the, with the officer? Why did they submit and go with the officer? Well, they've been, they've been preaching since early morning. They fulfilled the commands. And going with the, with the officers, with the guards, doesn't mean they're going to stop preaching. It just means they're changing venues. We're going to see that. The officers escort them, escort them to the Sanhedrin and set them right there in the middle of that semicircle with 70 men with Caiaphas seated in the center. And he speaks up and he says, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yeah, here you are. You fill Jerusalem with your teaching. Now, let me just ask you, I think it's a kind of a strange way to start. Let me ask you, if you put people in jail, if you're Caiaphas, let's say, if you put people into a, a guarded cell overnight, but the next morning they're gone with no evidence of any kind of jailbreak, what's your first question? Yeah, how'd you get out? I, I think that would be a, a, good, a good place to start the inquiry. How'd you get out? I wonder why he doesn't ask that. Now, my guess, and it's only a guess, I don't want to be dogmatic about it, but my my guess is that he doesn't really want to know. He might have a suspicion, but he doesn't want that suspicion spoken and confirmed. He don't, I don't think he wants whatever story the apostles might tell to be told. So he doesn't ask. Instead, he accuses. We, we told you not to teach in this name. And you filled Jerusalem with his teaching, the, the imagery of there is of a cup being filled to the brim and, and overflowing. You, you fill the city with, with this teaching. Notice here that he doesn't say the name Jesus. It's this name. And it continues in the next line. And you intend to bring this man's blood against us or upon us. Why doesn't he use the name? Well, regardless, it, it is a strange thing to say, setting aside the name thing for a minute. It's a strange thing to say. Think back. When Pilate washes his hands and gives Jesus over to death, Pilate says, I'm innocent of this man's blood. When he says that, Caiaphas and the priests and the Sanhedrin as a whole, along with the crowd who are all there, they say together, his blood be upon us and on our children. Caiaphas then was eager to have Jesus' blood hanging over his head. Now he wants out. He's a, he's a high priest. He, he convened the trial. He's the one, you remember, who stood up and tore his robe and, and, and called Jesus a blasphemer and, called, and sentenced him to death on behalf of, of, the whole, of the whole Sanhedrin. He watched Jesus suffer and die and added his voice to the mocking that was going on. 
What now? Why the change? I guess you could say in a, in, a, in, a, in a cynical way that politically it makes sense now that the crowds have turned for him to, to, to try and get out from under the responsibility. But I think it goes beyond that. Why won't he use Jesus' name? Why doesn't he ask how the apostles escaped? I wonder, and again, I, this, this is my wondering, my guess, I wonder if the enormity of what he has done has begun to bear down on his spirit and break through into his conscience. I, I don't think he's, he's simply trying to keep his political head. I think he's trying to justify his soul. I'm not responsible for that man's blood. Now, Christian or not, whether you're a Christian or not, you know what that's like. I know what that's like. You've done something. You've done it. You're guilty. You've sinned. It's catching up to you. Your conscience becomes your oppressor. So you're desperate to get out from under the burden. You're desperate to deny your guilt, to find some explanation, some way to be in the right. But the truth breaks out and preaches in the courtyard of your heart and you can't shut it up. No matter how hard you press it down. Caiaphas if he is trying to hide himself from the Lord, has done the worst thing he could possibly do. He's had the apostles brought before him. Not a smart move. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Now, Peter makes short work of the legal charge. Uh, obeying your command uh, would mean disobeying God. So, no, we're, we're, not, we're not going to do that. As for his blood, and your head, the God of our fathers. And notice it's very crucial. Peter does not exclude Caiaphas and the rest of the Sanhedrin. Our fathers. He means the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Your fathers, Caiaphas, and, and mine, ours. Our God raised Jesus. I'm saying his name. I'm not going to not say his name. From the dead. Whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. You took Caiaphas. You took God's son and tried to make him a curse. Yes, Caiaphas, we intend to bring this man's blood down on your heads. You killed him. God raised him from the dead. God exalted him to his right hand. 
Now this charge, you killed him, but God raised him from the dead, has been the point of the apostolic sword in every sermon so far in Acts. So I'll point out again, as I have every time, before you can hear, before you can truly hear the good news about Jesus, you need to be pierced and cut to the heart by the law. You have to have your guilt set before your eyes. Otherwise, you'll never come to Jesus as you must if he's going to receive you as a beggar, as a a lame man, as a blind woman, a prisoner who needs to be set free. You might come to him for advice, for some sage wisdom, for an example of good behavior, but you'll not come to him desperate for life, which is how you must come to him. For mercy and for salvation. That mercy and salvation is what Peter holds out to Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. God has exalted Jesus, whom you hung on a tree, to be leader. Now that could be translated prince, and some, I think in the King James Version, it is translated prince. Now, if Peter had just stopped there, God has exalted him as, as leader, as, as prince. That wouldn't help Caiaphas at all or anyone else. You killed the prince that God establishes bad news. But this prince is prince and savior. He's come to exercise his rule by saving sinners. Jesus has come to give repentance and forgiveness of sins. Jesus gives that. He imparts to his enemies, changed minds. That's what repentance means. Transformed hearts, turned hearts. He gives that to Israel. That's why Peter said, the God of our fathers, the God of our fathers, Caiaphas, raised this Jesus whom you killed. Peter wants Caiaphas and all the Sanhedrin Israel's representatives who hung Jesus on a tree to know, yes, Jesus' blood hangs over your head. Don't deny it. Don't hide from it. Confess it. Because Jesus brings forgiveness to Israel. That's why he gave himself over to you. So that his blood might not just hang over your head, but so that his blood might blot out all of your sins forever, so that you might have peace with God. By what power do you think we stand here, Peter is in effect saying, and what power do you think gives us the boldness to tell you these things and to defy your command? We're fishermen and tax collectors, and we're sinners too, but we have obeyed the one command that matters most, and it supersedes the rest. That's the command that God gives the transfiguration. This is my son. Listen to him. Trust in him. Believe in him. And so we did, and we've been filled with the Holy Spirit, and we bear witness to what we've seen and heard. I don't know how those words affected Caiaphas. But let me ask, it it being 
the first Sunday of Lent, let me ask you, whether you're a Christian or not, I hope you're a Christian, but if you're not, I'm asking you as well, is your conscience weighted down? Are you trying to escape from something you've said or done? Are you trying to square what you are doing with what you know to be true? And you find you can't square that circle. And so you're ashamed and you're burdened with guilt and you're weary of pushing it down. Well, God has raised for you a prince who is also a savior. Who sees you and who sees what you've done. But he has come to give you repentance and the forgiveness of your sins. Confess. Don't hide. Confess. He will take your guilt. He'll remove the stain. He'll blot out all of your sins with his blood. And you'll find rest for your soul. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word cannot be bound. No matter what the world seeks to do to shut the gospel up, uh, it it won't be shut up. Uh, Lord, we ask that you give us the boldness we see here with Peter and the the apostles to to speak the truth. We also ask you, Father, to give us um, humble hearts, ready to see where we are in error or sin and confess trusting in the promise that you give to us in Jesus to forgive all our sins. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.